The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop interrupting your legacy VB code and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 105 with guest Ken Getz, recorded live Thursday, March 17, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBNet and ASPNet classes remotely online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActorReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASPNet web applications online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who just provided tech support to his mother, on the start menu, Carl Franklin! I call my friends to play. Hey, welcome to .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. This is Carl Franklin in New London, Connecticut on this fine Thursday evening. And uh, you're listening. Thank you for listening. We love listeners. Richard Campbell, how are you out there in Vancouver, British Columbia, my friend? Still living in the land of the sun, man. It's beautiful and comfortable out here. Spring has definitely arrived. My wife's flowers are up. The mountains are all green. My moss is growing well. Yeah, it's uh, beginning to warm up a little bit here in New London, too. Um, Different signs of spring in the city than you have out there, for example, you know, the uh, the dirty snow on the sidewalk just turns to dirty dirt <laughs> on the sidewalk. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the bums take off of their winter coats, and uh, when they sleep in the alleyways, their BO is more pungent. Very nice. So That's a great one. Yeah. It's better than the one we edited out. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. well, you know, I'll give you that. That's for sure. What have you been doing this week? I have been writing code, my friend. Working for a living, are we? The Karlmeister is uh, trying to uh, change his night owl habits a little bit and turning turn them into an extreme morning hour habits. So I've been waking up at 5 o'clock and then 4.30 and 4. And this morning I got up at uh, about 3.30. So I've been going to bed really early. And uh, been, you know, getting up 3.30 for working, writing code. See, now you're at the point where you're actually getting up so early, you might as well have stayed up all night. No, no, no. <laughs> but it's funny. Usually I see 3.30 from the other side. Yeah, now you're yeah. seeing it from a new side. 
but I have written some great stuff and and I've gotten a lot more done than I normally do. Uh, it's fantastic. I'm really enjoying it. One thing that I did was I finalized my um, uh, codec software, which is essentially a DLL that you can use with any codec for audio processing. And I'm using it with Lame right now, but I've also tested it with Ogvorbis and with uh, Speaks and a couple other codecs. Basically uses the standard input and standard output of these codecs, the command line codecs, and uh, you know starts up a new process and then reads the standard input stream and the standard output stream. And it's cool because it raises events. Like if you're converting a WAV file to an MP3, you give it a block size of like 4K, and then every time 4K has been uh, processed, before it's processed, it raises an event and it passes you a byte array. So you have the data before it gets processed, and then it passes you the same, you know, uh, another byte array and another event handler uh, after it's been processed. So you may have a whole bunch of pre-process events, but only several, um, you know, smaller number of post-process events. So you get to, you know, do stuff like progress bars and, you know, uh, I actually wrote some code to do normalization. doesn't do it so on the fly. Is this the return of audio free X? Yeah, sort of. I mean, I'm sort of, I'm sort of cleaning up that code, you know, that we use for the voice over IP stuff. I'm cleaning it up because it was very much thrown together. Yeah. And so I'm, you know, um applying best practices and 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 separating code and and cleaning it up and and this is the first step. So I'm this stuff to my, I'm going to go back to the, my beta test role again, I guess. Yeah, but we're not going to test it like during the show, which is <laughs> Why it worked so well last time. <laughs> so anyway, I've been having a ball doing that and you will see the code published online I'm, fairly soon. I know you put out the uh, official podcast kit now. You got it named. Yes, the podcasting kit has been defined. We got video. We got everything. And here's what it is, folks. If you're into podcasting, you're a hobbyist podcast, or even a professional audio podcasting wonk, whatever, and you're looking for something that's portable, that can go with you, that can travel with you, that uh, that sounds really good and isn't complicated to work, and I think the simplicity factor of this stuff is what it's all about. We have tested a whole bunch of devices and a whole bunch of microphones and mixers and preamps and stuff, and we came up with, for something like 387 bucks US, which includes shipping, you get uh, a, micro- uh, a large diaphragm condenser microphone, the kind that I'm using right now, actually. And me. You get a, uh, a preamp, Instead of a mixer, because we found that most people are afraid of mixers. Even if they're really small mixers, they still have too many knobs where people can get really freaked out. And Yep, too many knobs. Too many knobs is a real problem, and it's very hard to diagnose when some knob is turned off and you're only on the phone with this person. Uh, so we have this preamp. It's this little Behringer uh, mini tube preamp. It's got a tube in it. It's got one dial for gain that stays off, and it's got one dial for volume, which stays at about 9 o'clock. And, you know, uh, it's got phantom power, so you just press the phantom power button, and that's it. Microphone goes in, audio goes out to a little uh, recording device, which is an iRiver IFP90T, a 512-megabyte flash um, recording, audio MP3 player recorder. 
and it has a line in recording. So, um, uh, and it runs on batteries. So it's very small. The microphone stand folds up to something that's less than a foot in diameter. And so that can go right into a briefcase. It's a little desktop microphone stand. And a couple of cables and some headphones, and you're good to go, man. And then you can just uh, take the MP3s that you record, and it records nice-sounding MP3s, too. Um, 192K or something, uh, maybe even higher than that. I think it goes up in the 200s in terms of Which the, is way more than you need for audio. Way more than you need for audio, for, especially for your uh, for voice. And uh, and so you just take those MP3s and you you copy them off of that thing and onto your computer and send them to Pwop and Pwop will podcast them for you. Or of course, if you're doing it yourself, you can do it yourself. So that URL is www.pwop.com/podcastingkit.aspx, or you can just go to pwop.com and click on podcasting kit. And there's also a video, a how-to video that I put together to show you how to use it. Now, this was really just an excuse for you to buy a lot of toys, right? Yeah, yeah. Got a lot. I of, know that I have any problem with that. Goodness <laughs> knows. I'm going to have an eBay fest here soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, Richard, we got some really cool mail this week, didn't we? Yeah. This one in particular came from uh, a kid, a 15-year-old kid in Liverpool. He says, hi, Carl and Richard. His name is Johnny Davies. He says, hi, Carl and Richard. Greetings from Liverpool, England. I love the show and have been a fan for about 12 months. I'm 15 years old and I'm really enjoying learning the cool stuff you discuss on your show. I am a self-taught .NET programmer and like the shows that point the way to being a better programmer like the Paul Sheriff show last week. None of my friends are into programming, so I don't know if I'm doing it right. My apps seem to work okay. Why on the Paul Sheriff show when you talked about coding standards... Did you all crack up laughing when somebody said dim or dim I as integer? Is this wrong? I don't understand. <laughs> is it because I was mean. <laughs> is it because variables should have more descriptive names than I or should you use dim at all? Should it be public, private, protected, etc.? In 16, 32, 64 rather than integer? Is there a book available that shows all the things I should that should be avoided? And he says, this was cool. He says, if you don't have time to reply, that's cool. I hope I can learn this stuff in university in three years' time. Keep up the great work, Johnny. Johnny, not only do we have time, we made time, but, man, we answered you on the show. So There you go. And and to answer your question about Dim, and the reason I chuckled is because, you know, it's just been so long since I've been in your shoes that, uh, you know, we forget sometimes that there are these little inside jokes that uh, – you know, are things that, that you learn from experience that uh, a chuckle, you know, is can be confusing to some people. But basically what Paul was saying, it was talking about naming standards of variables and that when you when you create a variable, it should be descriptive. It should describe what it is that it's holding or pointing to. Like uh, if you have a, you know, a data adapter, for example, and it holds the author's table, you know, or it's used to get the author's data table data into a data table. Did I say that right? No. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's used to work on the author's table in the pub's database. You should maybe call that, you know, author's data adapter or something like that. Something that's descriptive so that you know it instead of using just DA for data adapter. 
And so in the early days of programming, people just used, you know, A dollar sign, B dollar sign in basic anyway, right? Yeah. C dollar sign. And then the problem becomes when you look at your code, you can't, you have to remember what those things actually stand for. Now, Um, when you're 15 and you've only got a few programs in your belt, this isn't a big deal, but believe you, when you're old like us and you've written lots of programs, you're going to forget. Yeah. That being said, I don't have a big problem with I. Do you have a big problem no, with I? No, no. I use I actually use I all the time for iterating through a for through a for next loop, but I don't use it for anything else. Um just because there's, you know, there isn't any other reason that you're once you're done with a loop, you're done with I. Yeah. So it is a consistent use, and that's the important thing, is that right. it's consistent. And, that, you know, that we made that point later on in that show with Paul, was that it's all about consistency. There's always a right name. If the right name happens to be I for iterator, that's fine. Yeah. If you were going to recommend a book, I see the guys in the chat room already talking about this. I'm a big fan of Steve McConnell's Code Complete. Yeah. Can't go wrong. Great book. And your friends will think you're an egghead just because you have a book that's that big on your desk. That's right. So, and, and you know, I don't think McConnell's made a bad book yet. They're all worth reading. Right. Well, Richard, uh, if there's no more useless uh, banter that we could possibly uh, subject our listeners to, we should go ahead and introduce the guest. Yeah. Ken, our old friend Ken, who uh, when he was first on the show, Ken Getz, he uh, complained that we were we had cornered the market on middle-aged white guys. And... Uh, <laughs> And when he was asked to, or when he when he left us a message for the hundredth show, it was he complained because he hasn't been on in a long time. So, so uh, we're, we'll talk to him about that. But you know, so what I guess what I'm saying is, you know, he's a good guy, he's a smart guy, but he's a kind of middle aged white guy. He's a complainer. <laughs> <laughs> he's perfectionist. Yes, he is. All right, we'll talk to him anyway. Ken Getz is a senior consultant with MCW Technologies and splits his time between programming, writing, and training. He specializes in tools and applications written in Visual Studio.net and Visual Basic. Ken is a frequent speaker at technical conferences and has spoken often at Microsoft's TechEd conference. Ken is also a columnist for MSDN Magazine and writes for MSDN Online as well. You know him. You love him. Ken Getz, welcome to .NET Rocks again, sir. Glad to be back. I wasn't complaining, and I am not a complainer. Oh, come I on. I whine a lot. It's a big difference. <laughs> okay. You're a whiner. <laughs> and, however, I am a middle-aged white guy approaching 50, so there you go. <laughs> there you go. But you were right, though, when we, when, we, when we had you on early on, and, you know, you were, like, in one of the earliest guests, actually. And uh, you did point that out to us, and we looked at the roster and said, hey, man, he's right. We ought to get some diversity on here, so. And then you we, succeeded in about one-tenth of one percent of the shows, but what the heck you tried. <laughs> it's not our fault, man. There just See, aren't as many women or, you know, other people who are in, you know, the superstar limelight status. So At least in their own minds anyway. Yeah. And, you know, that's the only place it really matters is in our own minds. That's right. So, How you been? Glad to be here. Thanks. You know, I'm thinking, you know, I was, I was thinking I haven't seen Richard in a few months and – uh I remember about a year ago, I was living on a hilltop, and Richard was part of uh, visiting our house and staying there, and we walked up the hill, and it was hard, because, you know, kind of out of shape, and then Richard did this Kilimanjaro thing and trained for it. He was running ahead of all of us the last time we did it. Right. Uh, And I'm still going, Bob. I I can definitely sprint up the hill now. 
I'm really sorry we didn't have the last ceremonial climb up the hill before we sold the house. But Yeah, we should have done that. <laughs> it's gone. Oh, well. Yep. I suppose we could still go into the neighborhood and walk up the hill. I've been to L.A. twice since then. I've thought about taking a climb up the hill. I figured I would just cry if I did because I missed the house. Ah. Uh, have not been back to the old neighborhood. Casa de Getz was the, one of the most fabulous houses I've ever seen. I used to, whenever you held a party for whatever conference was in town at the time, I'd go down just for the party. I wouldn't bother going to the conference. I'd come to come to see your place, see you, and uh, and everybody that was there. It was great. Well, anyway, I tried to make know. it to the last one you had, but to, it turned out we were recording a .NET Rocks show at the same time that you were having a party. Otherwise, I would have been there because well, I had heard. Sorry about that. Well, no, it's not your fault. It's yep. Not ours either, so, actually. Anyway, we've all moved on. Here we are back on .NET Rocks again. And you have moved to sunny Florida. Right? Yeah, it just wasn't warm enough for me in California, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and the earthquake threat wasn't enough? You had to move over to hurricanes now? Yeah. That's right. you gotta have a, you got to have a natural disaster no matter where you go. <laughs> so did you get uh, swacked by the last hurricane? Uh, let's see. Uh, my friend Mary Chipman, who took care of my condo while we were away, described the bedroom as a bedroom lake with a bed island. Oh man! Oh, oh man! Uh, we, she and her husband Andy <laughs> Barron were uh, were uh, cleaning up the place using a broom and a dustbin to put water into buckets. They said they filled about twenty buckets full of water down the bathtub. Uh, we still are owing them for this great. Yeah, day. I was going to say. I think. I hope you gave them a good tip. Yeah, the, the 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 carpet has been removed and we're now tile only. So wow. yeah, you live in South Florida, carpets are not a good idea. Yeah, it's just too wet. Anyway, this is not technical. No one wants to hear yeah, this. Yeah, it's crap. true. Well, what have you been working on lately? I know you've been working on Widby a lot, but you actually uh, worked on some of the documentation uh, for as a contractor for Microsoft. ADO. Um, yeah, just a very small corner of ADO.NET 2.0 stuff. Um, my business partner Mary Chipman and I were, were working on some, and she ended up taking a full-time job writing documentation on ADO.net. Wow, cool. Uh, so I didn't really want to take a full-time job, and yeah. so I'm doing just a tiny, I mean, the tiniest corner of it. What little piece? Uh, one piece was the uh, asynchronous command behavior nice. that works with SQL Server. Nice. Very cool. It basically re- relieves you from having to think about how to set up the begin and end uh, methods for calling a command. Hmm. So, you know, it, it does yeah. the obvious thing. There's a begin execute method yeah. on a command object, and it starts up its own little background thread from the thread pool. And there is a code it calls. You know, you, you, you hand it a, 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 some method, or you can poll and wait till it's done, or right. just like any other asynchronous. It follows the standard asynchronous right. design pattern. So you can right. give it an event handle, and it just kicks off the event when the thing finishes? That's one way to do it, yeah. Does a component have an event handler built in, you know, an event uh, defined in it? I'm really sure there's a delegate for the event, yeah. for the callback. But, uh, you know, one thing it doesn't do, and, and it doesn't do anything more about asynchronous uh, thread handling than any other, you know, like calling a web service asynchronously. So, Unfortunately, this means that people who don't really think about uh, thread-safe issues are going to try and call these things, and they're going to get bitten by the fact that they have code executing in a different thread, and in Windows forms, that'll kill you. Right. 
so uh, it's funny when I originally worked on this documentation and posted around for tech review on the team. Uh, some of the testers came back and said, look, you've got to put this documentation. Don't do this unless you know what you're doing. I didn't quite make it that strong. But uh, <laughs> Well, wait a minute. I thought the asynchronous process uh, component in Widby sort of took all that stuff off your plate and gave you an event handler that was uh, synchronized. Different issue altogether. That's the background worker component. That's what I thought. And, I and thought- from the background worker, it does... Make sure, and at compile time, it'll tell you. If, I mean, not compile time, at runtime, it'll raise an exception if you attempt to communicate with the form with an object it's not synchronized against. Yeah. But this is I mean, that's another way to call an ex- execute command asynchronously. Right. But this is built into the command class, the SQL command class. So let me get this straight: the one that's built into the command class doesn't have that level of protection. Well, it can't. There's no way it could. Yeah. Because it doesn't have a synchronizing object. That would tie it down to Windows Forms, and you don't want that. Oh, that's true. Yeah. No, they don't, and um, they work exactly like calling a web service asynchronously does. You know, when you call a web service asynchronously, the proxy class generates that begin method call, Okay. and uh, you call it. And it's up to you to make sure you don't try to write to a Windows Form from a separate thread. Well, here's an here's an interesting thing. When I've I've developed components that use the synchronizing object property, yep. you know that's a an I uh, synchronize invoke handler. And the what I do is if there's a synchronizing object property setting, you know, if somebody has actually set it, then I will use that to call my virtual sub that raises the event with a delegate for you know meet with that dot invoke. But right. But, but if it's not there, then I will just call the, the virtual method directly. And basically so, you're saying at that point, hey, if you're not going to provide me a way to invoke this on your thread, right. it's bad. Right, exactly. So, But you get the choice. You don't have to tie it down to Windows Forms. You know, you can use it as a component if you want to. But if you do set the synchronizing object property, then you, then it's going to be synchronized. So it makes sense, but that really was beyond the scope of, I think, what they had in mind for this. Hmm. So um, Interesting. Because it, it just fits the standard simple begin, begin and, and end, end method design right. pattern. Right. Another True. thing that I played with for this was a feature that really haven't, hasn't gotten any airplay, haven't really seen it in any of the documents on what's new on ADO.net 2.0, but it's it's really one of my favorites. And when the topics went around for grabs who wanted to play with them, it's the first one I grabbed, and that is the command, the connection builder, connection string builder. That's it. I get it right. Hmm. Connection string builder. And this is, a, a, there's a base class in the common namespace, and there is an over, overloaded, sorry, overridden version in each of the strongly typed classes. You know, there's a SQL connection string builder and an right. Oracle connection string builder, and uh, you got it. Anyway, and this is this cool class which will parse and generate connection strings given all the bits and pieces of the connection string. So like the 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 initial catalog is actually a property, right. things like that? Oh, that's cool. And so it's strongly typed for SQL. They know exactly what the various parts of a SQL connection string are. About freaking time, huh? Yeah, and for Oracle, for example, or Oracle also, sorry, has limited, has exactly what they support. But for OLADB, for example, where they can't know, they either query the provider or 
they have generic ones, and you fill in the bits and pieces as you go along. Yeah. But uh, they make it pretty easy. And all this time, I've written so much code parsing those frickin' connection strings, yeah. and now they do it. That's cool. So that, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, very, it's nice that it's in there. And, it, and it's such an obvious thing. We all want that, right. but it's just not being talked about. Yeah, and the command builder also has been extended in this version to do better parsing of commands. There's only so much they can do. Right. But uh, it's it's stronger this time. Do you have options? starting to parse the SQL statement? Uh, some, they do deal with parameters better. And uh, I, I haven't really dug into it too much, but they definitely have done a lot of additions to it. There is There are now strongly typed command builders. So there's a SQL command builder. There, there was only, I think in the previous version, we're only... Uh, generic ones. There was a DB command builder before in the base class, but I believe they there, have. A, there was a this SQL command new builder. added strongly typed command builders. I I used a SQL command builder. Okay, then whatever it is, they've added more functionality with this. Okay, time. haven't really dug in deep, but it's the same kind of concept as the connection string builder. Yeah, you know what you used on the command. The SQL command builder was it would it would retrieve for you the command that you'd put into a data adapter, for example, or a, a, a data adapter. But it wasn't really good at, at parsing out the parameters and, or building parameter strings for you. I think this version is, is stronger on parameter values. That's cool. So it, it's pretty neat, and I'm, I've enjoyed that. The background worker you mentioned is, is I think, one of the coolest things in oh, Windows Forms, too. and it also isn't getting the airplay I would have expected. Well, nobody knows it's a problem. That's that's the problem with it, you know? I'm right. It's, it's solving a problem those people don't know. But you know what? It's not the thread handling that's the, that, that's the most appealing part of this. Imagine you're a VB6 developer, and you have code that is, say, I have the, the classic example, is querying the file system and looking for files. And while you're querying the file system, your form is basically dead. Right. So now you move to .NET, and you write the same code, and <laughs> damned if your form isn't still dead. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Digging into how to do asynchronous calls and all that kind of stuff, you just drop a, command, a background worker on your form, put the file system code in the do work, I can't remember the yeah, name. Yeah, it's do work. Method, yeah. Whatever it is. And suddenly, it just works. Yep. And it takes care of the, the cross-thread issues as well. It's very so cool. That's a, that, that's a problem in search of an answer. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we did this background work ourselves in VB6, which was bloody dangerous because, you know, the yeah. VB6 never handled threads properly. Do events, right. Not if you good. do events, you had all these recursive event handling problems. Right. And if you did create your own thread, well, more power to you, but you <laughs> needed to find a life. True. Yeah. And it was, and, you know, you crashed your software in strange and exotic ways that did damage to the operating system along the way. And even, right. even in uh, VBNet, you know, you still have to do quite a bit of plumbing code with delegates and synchronize invoke and all that stuff just to get something working asynchronously that, you know, when you show it to people, their eyes glaze over and they say, there's no way I'm ever going to do that on a regular basis. You know, well, you without- know what? If you don't care about the cross-threading issue, it's not very hard, but it just will crash at random times or do weird things. Right, but you obviously have to care about it. Once you know that it's a problem, you can't not address right, it. Right, you can't avoid it. Yeah. So. The other, the other cool feature which has gotten no airplay, which I, I, I don't, I, this one's a little harder to sell, is that VB added this concept of custom events. And in C Sharp, you could always control exactly the behavior of the event handler you were working with. But in VB, because the way they handled events, you couldn't get in there and tell them that when you invoke the delegate, what code exactly you want to run. 
because they would generate that up for you. Hmm. And in the next version, they've added a concept called custom events, where if you create a custom event, then you can control exactly how your event behaves. For example, imagine you had uh, your code raise an event. Somewhere you had a class that raised an event. And you had, say, five listeners that were having handles clauses to handle that event, right? Right. See that happening. And what if one of those listeners raised an exception? Hmm. What happens? So your class raises the event. Yeah, all you, these listeners are waiting, and, and what happens is you raise then it, yeah. calls you. each of them in, an, in a linked list that they maintain, and if any one of them raises an exception, if you're, there's more down the list, they just never get called. Right. So custom events allow you to say, well, you know, maybe I don't want to call them in the order you specify. Maybe I want to call them in the, in the order I specify. Yeah. Or you nice. can say, okay, if one of them raises an exception, I'll just log it and keep going. Right. You have now have control over these things. Right. You can control the invocation of the listeners, which you couldn't in without a little bit of effort. That's very in cool. Previous versions. So I really, really think it's a cool feature we finally got in the language. You know, it's another one of those classic ones where if this has been a problem for you, this solution is a godsend. If you've never encountered it, you look at it and go, "Well, so." Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And most people are going to look at it and say, "Okay, why do I need this custom event thing?" So. Right. Right. Hopefully, discussing it will bring up the point to somebody. But the fact that if you use the handles clause in DB.NET, you have no control over the order in which the listeners are called, at least points out one problem. Yeah, and it, it really gets into a situation. You know, this one of those things where it's going to bite you is two generations into the application where you've got more and more hooks on the same event, and, and order suddenly begins to matter. Or if someone raises an exception in the middle of one of the listeners. Yeah, and it breaks it. And, and, and suddenly, listeners just don't get called. Right. So it's, it's an issue. Somebody's going to care, I'm sure. So um, I'm sure that I sound really, really good on this connection because I'm using my landline. But in general, you know, I've got three voice over IP lines here. And, and it, it, Richard, you're using them too, are you? Yeah, and I'm a, I'm a, a voice over IP fan. Well, you and I have talked about this, you know, independently for more than a year, I think. Yeah, I finally bit the bullet when I moved to my condo here, and there's really no way to wire it for more than one physical line. Hmm. They just didn't put any more wires in. Right, we'd have to run wires ourselves, and you know, there's really no place to do that here. Well, and you're a fair way up in the air, right? You're in a, in a tower. Yeah, I'm on the 23rd floor, but you know, it, it could happen. There's a phone closet two floors down. We could work it out, but you know, it just seemed to make sense to get the one landline, get the cable uh, modem, and... Uh, Use Vonage, and I've been very happy with it. Yeah, you know, Richard, I know that you both use Vonage, and, and I actually have it as well. And I'll tell you one thing that I really like about it is that you can have voicemail forwarded to you by email. That's a great feature. And it's I one thing Vonage that. does great is that a whole administration client by web yes. rather than by touchtone codes. And, you know, you can get really far with Vonage doing a lot of stuff. Um, we, you can manage your entire account, you can check your voicemail, you can change features without ever talking to a human. And I must confess, I had to talk to a human at Vonage once, and it's something you don't want to do if you don't have to. Because <laughs> it's not a fun experience. I, I know my friend John Bristow is a big fan of this one thing I've done with it, which is I have a customer down in Costa Rica, and uh, a lot of the guys that are working down there are Canadians. And so we had a whole bunch of guys who were Canadians from Toronto, another one batch that were from Vancouver. And what we did was we got one of these Vonage boxes and we put a Canadian number, uh, we put a Vancouver number on a Toronto number on it, and then we shipped the box down to CR. And the, now 
the friends and family up in Toronto and Vancouver can call the guys in CR for free because they're calling a local number. Right. We have to point out that when you use Vonage, you can pick whatever area code you want as your phone number, and it's assigned to this piece of hardware, and take it with you wherever you want. How much did you get? Number wherever you are. How much did you guys get paid for this little infomercial here? (laughs) You know, we really are trying to solve problems here, trying to make stuff work, and and I don't care who provides it. If it works, I'm going to buy it. Say this. I'm going to say this. That if anyone listening decides to switch to Vonage, it's twenty nine ninety five or something like that for unlimited long distance, send me email. Because if you do, you can use my code when you sign up and I get a month free. <laughs> <laughs> There's the payback. You know, when we had there. when we did the one hundredth show when we did the one hundredth show, uh we asked people to call you know, guests to call in with a little message that we could play. And those all got sent to us with the voicemail, Vonage voicemail. Do yourself a favor and check out our friend's Data Dynamics website, datadynamics.com, makers of activereports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for uh, Windows Forms and ASP.NET. Very nice stuff. You compile the, uh, the reports right into your application, ship them with your assemblies. Uh, has all the great features you come to expect in a reporting engine. And you can use uh, ActiveX controls right in the reports, too. So, great stuff. Uh, Data Dynamics has been an excellent sponsor of .NET Rocks uh, for a long time. They uh, you know they deserve a little bit of uh, your love and attention. So, go check them out at www.datadynamics.com. .NET tip of the day, okay? I got some code today from somebody. Oh. Got some code. And, you know, I'm, I'm anal retentive. Richard knows this. No, no. About code. And I started looking at this, and, and what, what he had done was, was concatenating a bunch of strings together. And, and rather than just using, you know, concatenating strings, it did use the string builder class. But because he wanted character and line feed at the end of each one, he was actually building up formatted text. He had, at the end of each line, do a string builder dot append, some text, and then a character and line feed character at the end. And in C-sharp, that's easy. You slash n. But in VB.net, you've got to concatenate on a constant value. And 20 lines later, I'm getting tired of looking at it. And the fact is, the string writer class is a perfect way to do this sort of thing, because it's got a write line method. And you just say string writer dot write line and give it the text. And it just puts into a stream because you know you're going from top to bottom. You're just streaming the output. And it's A, faster, B, more efficient, and C, none of those stupid new line constants in your code. 
So more legible, too. It's more legible, and I think it's faster. I've done the timing. Because string builders got to maintain this cache, and if you're only just appending text, a string builder's kind of a waste of time. Yeah. So string writer, that's the key. String writer. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of like Ghostbusters, string writer. That's, string writer. Who are you going to call? <laughs> string writer. It's my favorite class. But you've been putting out tips like that as long as I've known you. There's always that was the thing I could always count on with you, Ken. Was there was a better way, and you knew it. Well, let's, I collect them like other people collect baseball cards. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So and I don't in, know in, if it's the right answer or not, but in this case, it's a it good definitely answer. cleaned up the code. I know. Uh, I whenever I had to submit writing to you, I knew it was going to come back better and red. You mean in red color or uh, red by a human? Red ink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to send an article for me to edit unless you want it to come back red. Yeah, unless you – well, that's the thing is I, I really genuinely want this article to be better, and I can guarantee if I put it in front of Ken, when I finally wade through his detailed analysis of it and implement his ideas, it's going to be a better article. Yeah, go, go visit Paul Vick's blog sometime. One of his entries <laughs> last year was Ken Gets is a Pain in the Ass. <laughs> I was a tech editor on his book, and every chapter was like that. Every chapter. Paul Vick is brilliant and a great writer, but, you know... It could be better. No, it's just I had different opinions. That's all. Ah. Ken, do you I, have a blog? I don't. You know, I do a lot of writing in public in which I get to expose, espouse my opinions. There's the back page of Code Magazine. There's MSDN Magazine and MSDN Online, and... I figure that's that's about as much blog as I need. Yeah, you've already you've had your blog conduits in one form or another for for ten years. So yes, I'd like to at some point, but you know, there's only so much writing one can do. Hey, let me uh, switch gears for a second here and talk about uh, SharePoint. SharePoint, yeah. I know that's something you've been getting into lately. Yeah, you know, you move into a condo and you feel like you have to get involved in the in the uh, the community. And we were at a board meeting once, you know, the, the public meeting where everybody can go. And they said, we need a website. And the Mary Chipman sitting next to me says, I think Ken can do that. <laughs> so um, Mary, actually, Mary volunteered us and then said, well, you can do it. And um, so I decided to use SharePoint, having never used SharePoint before. And it's been a really fun experience. And, and although I've learned just a bare minimum to get by, the deeper I go, the cooler I think it. I think this is going to be a big product for Microsoft. And you, know, you look at all the products coming out next year or the year after, and a lot of them are centered around SharePoint. Yeah, there's a lot of talent at Microsoft focused on SharePoint. It really, they've got a vision going there of, of uh, you know, serious intranet technology and integrating Office and pulling all these things together into a, a combined sort of space. And you, you've asked someone at Microsoft, and someone has done a poll, and it seems like there's something like inside Microsoft, something like, and I'm not kidding, something like 70,000 SharePoint sites, because each team wow. will rev one up just for their project they're working on as a collaboration tool. When they're done, it just stays there or dies, one or the other, but it's really quick and easy for coming up with collaborative sites. It's just a bunch of templates for quickly genning, genning up a, a real site. So how programmable is it? It's, well, if you think about it, 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 at the current version, it's all based on the concept of web parts, which are really nothing more than ASP.NET custom controls. There are even tools out there that will wrap an ASP.NET user control in a wrapper and make it be a web part. 
you implement an interfacer to, I'm making it sound like it's easy, and believe me, it's not. <laughs> you implement an interfacer to, and you add some methods, and bam, you got a web part. Hmm. And there's a bunch of them out there already, and they're little building blocks. Does anyone remember, anyone remember Outlook had digital dashboards about three, four years ago? They yes, had to make yeah. a splash with this, right. and it got no traction at all. None. No traction. Hard to Both wire guys up. using it loved it a lot. Yep. Yeah, and that sort of grew into SharePoint. I mean, not not. There's no linear connection. I'm sure. Is that because but the concept uh, of dragging and dropping web parts and building your own? I mean, even a user can modify the layout of the page they see in SharePoint. So you know, it's it's pretty nice experience for users. And there's a pretty good extensibility story. And there's a number of ways you can communicate with SharePoint, like. They provide a whole series of web services for retrieving and adding data. You can there's a com, uh, not a com. There is a interop layer for communicating, you know, programmatic with programmatic. That's great English. Programming <laughs> SharePoint from the server side. There is a web dev layer if you're that kind of programmer, and there is a, a front page RPC interface for sending HTTP requests and getting responses back for things like inserting documents into libraries. Hmm. So they have a pretty full featured. Um, uh, API for different oh. ways of interacting with them. Most people will use the web services. That's what you do if you want to retrieve lists of data from SharePoint. How how easy is this for public websites? I mean, I know that you, you sort of use a SharePoint when you have a group of people on an intranet, you know, in an organization. But, you know, that aside, would it be easy to set up, you know, uh, a public website using SharePoint or is that just a total misuse of the technology? Um, I well, our our condo has a public website built in SharePoint, and it probably is a misuse of the technology. But um, a lot of people want to do it, and you'll find articles. I mean, the default behavior is that you authenticate using most likely Windows authentication to get right. into the site. Right. So it, the, the assumption is everyone visits the site is part of a domain, and that's really what it's for. But it's pretty easy to make it uh, add the anonymous user and make the site allow anonymous authentication, hmm. which is what we've done. So anyone can get to our condo website, and you know we have to be careful not to post public and you know private information on this public website. But um, you have to be careful that anyway, though. Yeah, you're right. You have to anyway. And uh, I keep forgetting sometimes that anyone could. Though why anyone want to come to our website and find information about our condo? I have no idea. <laughs> it doesn't live in the condo, but they could. And because we have anonymous authentication, they can. But and you can mix and you can mix models too, obviously, on the site. Is this like a wiki waiting to happen here? <laughs> uh, obviously is, because anyone can. There's obviously web parts set up for group discussions right. and for event listing, and anyone can post whatever they want there. This is why um, you really don't want to open SharePoint sites to the public unless you're really willing to allow people you know, to put yeah. whatever they want there. This brings me to actually an interesting thing, which is, you know, there have been a lot of these starter kits and community starter kits at ASP.NET and .NET Nuke and iBuySpy and and all these sort of, you know, uh, customizable big portal sites out there. Have you seen or played with any of those, and, and how does this compare to that stuff? Well, I mean, .NET Nuke is clearly a huge, community-supported, really rich environment for building portals, and, and it gives you a lot more flexibility than... SharePoint does those SharePoint's way easy. I mean, right. Anybody can click a button, answer a few questions, and have a pretty reasonable site up in five minutes with SharePoint. Wow. I did use the ASP.NET Community Starter Kit. I um, had a college reunion that I was sort of in charge of gathering information for people. 
And I decided to start with the starter kit back then because I was in a rush and had to have something up fast. And although it got a site up fast with that kit, and it was pretty amazing how fast you could do it to modify the schema of their database in a, in a format yeah. that would you know, make it possible to, to proliferate it throughout the entire site. That took me a day. Did you ever get uh, dynamic images working? How long did that take in the community portal site? It took me about a, a day. Yeah, me too. <laughs> My theory that was on those, after those, it started working. Those portal sites, the starter kits, was they were really seriously over-engineered for what they were meant for. Uh, to- dude, I totally agree. Totally agree. I mean, the schema was buried in 17 places as far yeah. as I could tell. Yeah, it was. So although they did a great job and I got a site up in three days and it was very full-featured, yeah. discussion groups and everything, it um, it was a big pain. Now, what I'm interested in looking at, I haven't looked at yet, is is Rob Howard and his company have their community server. Yes, that's Telligent, right? Telligent, right. Yeah. And uh, this looks to be cool. I mean, Rob obviously has done great things, and I'm sure right. he's been on your show more than once. Actually, he hasn't. He has not, but we've, we've tried. got to get him. Yeah, because he's a great guy to talk to. It's been scheduling. Really, really energetic and very verbal, and you know, he'd be great, a great guest. Um, and I'm sure this is a great product. I haven't had time to look at it. I know people have, and uh, I think it'll be good for that sort of thing. <laughs> okay. Or community portals. So get Rob on. Yeah, well, we have tried to have him on, but his, he's got a very rough schedule, and our schedules just haven't clicked yet, but, but he's on the list. Yeah, get Rob. Yeah. And there's a new version of .NET Nuke out there now we got to talk about at some point, too. I also think it's very funny that you had Paul Sheriff on last week, and Paul Sheriff and I have a long and twisted relationship. We've written books together. We've written articles together. We have trained together. And here we are back-to-back on .NET Rocks. It's great for me. It's Richard's like I've fault. had two friends on back-to-back, so it's been, <laughs> you know, as a rookie co-host, it's easy to interview your friends. Yeah. It's just funny because, you know, we go way back, as we do with Richard. Well, yeah. and you know, we're talking about style, you know, competing, competitive or uh, cooperative styles. I think you and Paul have always worked quite well together in that respect. But you've worked with a lot of interesting folks. MCW Tech, not that Paul Sheriff's had any relationship per se with MCW Tech, is the most unusual collection of people. We're I mean, all different and eccentric. And eccentric in different ways. I mean, I remember the old, old days of uh, Paul Litwin and Mike Gilbert and, and, and Ken Getz collaborating together. Yeah, let's not forget Mike Gunderloy. There was, and Mike Gunderloy. There was an office at one point at Microsoft. We were doing Wizards for Visual Interdev, the product that never should have. And uh, <laughs> we were locked in an office. And here in an office, a, a Microsoft internal office, about 8 by 10, we had Mike Gunderloy and Mike Gilbert and Paul Lidwin and Mary Chipman and me locked in this office with about 11 computers. So it, it, was, it was pretty ugly there for a while. Wow. So that was about 10 years ago. What now, oh, for anybody who was ever into that space, we always wondered exactly what MCW meant. Oh, we don't talk about it in public. <laughs> Is it somebody's initials? No. 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 I'm pretty sure Richard knows what it stands for. It doesn't stand for anything. Never mind. Never say it. Yeah, it doesn't stand for anything. Moving along. <laughs> so um, I, I don't want to go there. But now we've added Brian Randall. Brian Randall's another uh, another. Um, Eccentric personality? Yeah, he has a strong personality. We work really well together because I'm really good on details, and Brian really is really good on the big picture. He's a dreamer. I'm a detail grunt kind of guy, so it works out good. Uh, what I wanted to talk about before we leave SharePoint was uh, Windows SharePoint services. Yeah. And uh, so this is how you can uh, 
What what does that allow you to do actually? The other than the stuff that you already talked about for SharePoint. Windows SharePoint Services is the free uh, layer built. It's included with Windows Server 2003. Everyone gets it, or it's a free download. I forget which. Okay. Um, and it's it's free. Did I say that? Yeah. And it does require Windows Server 2003. It's built on top of SQL Server 2000, and it uses ASP.NET to render pages on request that are mostly for collaboration or for you know group working groups working together. It's very simple to create uh, sites using templates they provide. You can create your own templates as well and add them to the available templates. And like I said, web parts are ASP.NET custom controls. Okay, so SharePoint services is the way that SharePoint is put together, sort of the API? Uh, SharePoint, it, isn't, it, isn't it tough the way they've used that name? Windows SharePoint services is the SharePoint product. Okay, but... Strangled somehow, like it's a free version? SharePoint. I mean, it is. that's what SharePoint is. It's just that there are two versions. There is SharePoint Portal Server, which is a superset of Windows SharePoint services. Okay. And the Portal Server is the pay version. Pay version. And it, it, it adds some extra features, like the ability to search across sites. Hmm. With Windows SharePoint services, I believe you can only search on a single site. But with Portal, you can search across multiple sites. What's the killer feature that you actually pay for that makes it what well, it is? You know, being is uh, only only site I've got out there publicly now is my condo site, and I didn't want to pay for it. I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll have to get someone who's an expert on this. And if I might recommend okay. an expert. Yes, please do. Ted Patterson. Mm. Oh, he'd be yeah. a great guy. Jason Masterman have a company they've created which is focused on SharePoint training and development. Is that Barracuda? Barracuda.net. Yeah. So if you haven't talked to Jason or Ted, old pals. I don't know LA why, area, I don't know why I, um, we haven't. I uh, would recommend so. you do. They would be far more likely to be able to give you correct information about SharePoint than I can. I am speaking of it from a I've played with it point of view. They okay. are actually worked at it. All right, good. We'll talk about that. Toys. You are a toy boy like Richard. Yep. I, you were the first guy who turned me on to Sprint PCS on your last show. Uh, forget that. All right, but moved on. I know, but you know, <laughs> you you were the one who brought that to my attention. So I thank you for that. I I still have a Sprint PCS uh, Wi-Fi card. Me too, but I'm not using it. What have yeah. we moved on to? What have you moved on to? What do you think? Verizon has a tech a technology. I mean, my my Sprint card, my contract expired. And um, you know, I was month to month anyway, and Verizon had this deal where they sort of gave away their card pretty much to free, and their service is at worst the same speed as Sprint, and at best better than my DSL connection at home. Wow. Wow, that's impressive. If I'm here in West Palm Beach, for example, it is amazingly fast. Wow. In Seattle, it's not so fast. But in about 30 different locales and in about 10 different airports, they're running between three to 500 kbps minimum up to, you know, fast. Wow. That's stunning. Now, this is the, the new Edge technologies. No, that Edge is a GSM technology. Oh, right, of course. This is the EV-DO technology. Wow, I got to get me one of them. Because I actually do have Verizon for a cell phone uh 
carrier, but I have Sprint for this, uh, the PCS card. I don't think Verizon's giving you a break, even if you're a customer. Okay. But it's still cheaper than Sprint. So right. it's 80 bucks a month, and uh, I've been very happy with it so far. Flat rate, no uh, buy-bite charges. I mean, it's 80 bucks a month flat rate. You really have to travel a lot or be in a city where they have the fast connection speed to make it worth it. Yeah, right. But yeah. since I do both, it's, I mean, basically, you know, I can go anywhere in the city I live and get really fast connection over the airwaves. Awesome. What it's other? just a PCMCIA card. Yep. Yeah. The only hassle that does have an external antenna which sticks up and I keep hitting with my hand. But, you know, yeah. as Richard says, I like the wine. <laughs> <laughs> I want to jump back to a technology related to Vonage, which is Televantage. Oh, Televantage, yeah. So Televantage, Richard, if you'll remember back when, I we do. Look, we've been searching for voicemail systems since time immemorial. I originally worked on a, a voicemail system for a friend back in early 90s based on OS2 which Richard, I'm sure, remembers. <laughs> and uh, back then when I was smarter, um, I, you know, we were writing code in C++ and all this stuff to support this voiceful system, but it came a point in about 1998 where hardware on the computer was running on started dying, and it was un- impossible to find replacement hardware at that point. They no longer made hardware that would fit this machine that we'd put up in 1992, at least that I could find. Five and a quarter inch floppy drives? Can't yeah, find them anymore. Yeah, Actually, I didn't have anything like that, but it did require really old motherboard parts and stuff, so I gave up, and we dumped that. It sort of fell apart and died. You know, software, I've, I've decided, as it gets old, it just starts falling apart. Not just hardware. Software starts, bits and pieces start falling off and not working anymore. It just unravels. Yeah, it unravels, and this was pretty sad. So started looking, and Richard, you were involved in that search back in 98, 99, and everything yeah. I really liked. I went with a piece of hardware from Panasonic, which, to be honest, sucked from the first to the last. And uh, <laughs> then my friend who wrote the original OS2 system I worked on pointed out Televantage, which he's been using. It's a Windows-based system. It's not particularly cheap, but it's not terribly expensive, and uh, it does a great job here. And it does wonderful features like a Windows-based client piece so I could watch calls coming in and monitor calls and and decide to take them. If I see it's Richard calling, I can right-click and say reject the call (laughs) (laughs) or send it right to voicemail or pick it up. One of my favorite features is you can, from Outlook, find a contact, right-click, and choose dial the phone because I can't manage to dial my own phone. And that's pretty nice. And it does the voicemail message comes in. It sends it to me by email. So I... It's kind of a cool feature. I'm on the phone with uh, my, you know, on the road with my cell phone. A message comes in at home. I don't even have to call in to get it. I just play it over my cell phone. Nice. Send and this is tele- and you routed your Vonage through this. Yeah. Now, have you made it sort of smart so you're using a landline for local calls and using Vonage for long distance, that kind of thing? No, but I did set it up so it automatically tries to grab a Vonage line if it can, uh, because those are free going out. Right. And I don't, use, I don't have a long distance service on my landline. And this is televantage.com. Um, TelevantageOnline.com is one of their biggest resellers. Okay, because TelevantageOnline.com. Televantage.com looks pretty lame. So it's worth looking at. And the last toy I'm going to push on is is this Windows smartphone. Richard, you got the original Motorola smartphone. Yeah, and I've gotten the new one since then. You do. I got. I never liked flip phones, so I got the AudioVox one that AT and T was selling. And I'm never going back. Yeah, you know what? I've heard so many rave reviews about that AudioVox candy bar phone. 
because the fact that Exchange will do automatic push of your email, it does it for your phone too, will push to a smartphone client. So I don't leave up no stinking BlackBerry. It's on my little teeny phone. And I yeah. responding to messages takes thumb dexterity, but you get over it. But it's not pop either. It's Exchange. So the mail's still on the server. You only get what you need. And if I delete it from the phone, you know, it's like really managing my inbox. Yeah. It deletes it from Exchange, which is exactly what I wanted to do. I get home, and I don't have 300 messages in my inbox. They've all been man- man- managed by the phone. So it's, it's really a nice feature. But you can read a mail without ha- and still sitting available in your proper uh, outlook when you get home. That's right. It hasn't removed it from my inbox to send it through POP3. Right. You know, even in POP3, you can tell it not to do that. Yeah, but then you have to download again and da 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 I want you to control duplicates, and none of that stuff works properly. So I would strongly recommend, I think they finally, in version 3, didn't they always say no Microsoft product is ready till its third version? Absolutely. In this version, Windows smartphone is really hot. Yeah, I think they've really knocked it out of the park. The Windows Media Player 10 is on the phone. And so I can, you know, I can stream video content from Windows Media Center to the phone. Play, I have, um, you know, play MP3s through the headphones that come with it. it it's, it's very good. Yeah, nice. I've been I've been trying to uh, get a one gigabyte mini SD for my uh, VPX two twenty because I want to start playing Seinfeld episodes on my phone. Now we still remember back. Let's remember back to nineteen whenever when Richard handed me a CD full of every existing episode of. South Park. South Park. <laughs> we'll have to get those on the phone now. <laughs> yes. So is Carl still here? I can't hear a thing. Uh, yes, I am. Thank you for letting me say something. That's very nice of you. <laughs> it's all right. I, it, it's great to hear you guys uh, talking about the old times and about your toys and stuff. Really, I'm really enjoying this. I'm sure no one cares about the old times, however. Well, that's not true. It's, it's good to hear stories. What about this Seagate 100 gig laptop drive that you uh, told me about before the show? Well, how big is the laptop drive? How big is the hard drive in your laptop? Well, I have a 60 gig, and, and it's probably have, a 7200 RPM, pretty fast. I have 60 two gig 60 drive, gigs. Right? It's a Hitachi drive. I've got the same one. And 60 gig just isn't big enough. I want <laughs> a bigger drive. And Seagate finally released a 100 gigabyte, nine and a half millimeter. Laptop drive. 7,200 wow. RPM is the key point here. It's not. It's 5,400. Right. They are going to have a 7,200 RPM drive, but it's going to be expensive and run hot. Yeah. This one's 54, and it's for a data drive, you know, it's, it's fast enough. It's fine. And um, I got to mention that I don't think most people know. I, I, I know all you guys know listening, but a lot of people don't know that laptop drives are not specific to the laptop. No. So anybody's got a laptop really can buy this thing and replace their hard drive with it. Huh? Yeah, they're I didn't all know standard that. interfaces. I used to, uh, and Ken certainly knows this. On my old laptops, before the time of VPCs, I carried multiple drives for my laptops. I had my drive, which was the email and and those sorts of things, and then I had a drive dedicated only to training, and I had a drive dedicated only to conferences. So that you could run different configurations and so forth on the different drives and never have the two cross over. And so it always surprised people in the speaker's lounge when it was time for me to go on. I'd suddenly shut down my machine, flip it over, pull out a screwdriver, switch the drive, <laughs> and then put it back together and leave. Which still isn't a bad idea. No, you know, because VPCs just aren't that fast. I just finished a tour doing a VPC interopping between BEA, WebLogic, J2EE, and .NET. 
uh, in a Windows 2003 session, and, and it was just brutal. Like, I got to put more gigabytes of memory into my machine to make it run fast. Hence the need for 7200 RPM hard drives, because these VPCs are massive, and uh, and it hurts. Hey, you know what's you know what's cool, Richard, is um, with a drive that's a hundred gigs, uh, like this, like this new this new drive that you're talking about, you actually reach the point where you could partition your drive and actually have multiple installs of XP or uh, 2K3 or whatever you're running, and use uh you know use either one of those Norton bootloaders or Grub or Lilo or or you know like one of those open source ones or whatever, and just switch between your various Windows installs. And mm. it, it's actually practical with a drive of that size. It's embarrassing that we actually need it, you know, no less than 20 gigs per <laughs> volume to make it usable. I also want to stop and, and ask, you know, I bet there's a bunch of listeners. Raise your hand out there if you know what VPC is, because I'm worried that a lot of developers haven't run across this essential tool, the Microsoft Virtual PC. Because if you're doing multiple operating systems or beta testing, God forbid, software... Yeah. You got to have it, and you know, Carl, you should get my business partner Brian Randall on because Brian is expert in VPC. He's sort of sort of focusing on it as a as a as a platform to be an expert on. That would be cool. And he is full of tips. I mean, if anything goes wrong with my VPC, he knows how to solve it. Cool. Oh yeah, I'd like to ask him about that too because I struggle with VPCs all the time. And then the thing about virtual PC is, finally, we can all beta test. CTPs make sense. I mean, I remember the old days, whenever I got a new version of an OS or a development environment, and I'd look around my office and go, well, which computer do I want to screw up? It's, it's called sacrificing a computer. Yeah, to a beta, because you know it's pranged after this. So with, with a virtual PC, you just sort of install it on your computer, run it, and when you're done, throw it away. Yeah, well, time to reform. Yeah, I'd look around and find the machine that was the oldest that I was planning on reformatting soon, and that's what I put the beta on. A, a, a .NET Rock session on virtual PC would do a lot of people a favor. Not for me to tell you how to do your business. What do you think, Carl? Actually, I was just messing with the audio connection, which seems to have, uh, on my laptop, which seems to have borked. Well, you know, Creative just released a, a PC card you put in your machine. It's a very nice audio, uh, you know, a, a USB audio card, basically, digital audio. Yeah, I have a nice USB audio card, but it ain't so nice right now. It's pranged. It's- Pranged. So, is it a creative one? No, actually, it's an M Audio. Mm. Well, look at that new creative one. It's got good reviews. Then again, it could be the PC too. You know, oh well. Yeah, creative's gonna... okay as long as you don't mind running a consumer sound card in what is otherwise a pro <laughs> audio studio here. Ooh, and, <laughs> ooh, ooh. You know, traditionally, creative cards are fine yeah. as long as you only care about you know, sort of an acceptable sound quality and a sort of crappy <laughs> signal to noise ratio but you know i mean if, the, if if you're a plebe that's okay you know that's fine hey jeff don't hold back on us man no, let I'm us know gonna. how you really feel about this i guess i've been put in my place you know i only read computer magazines on airplanes because you know it's all a chance you get and they're mostly just reviews and ads and i'm thinking this is like porn for software developers it is man that's totally what it is <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, it's like, are we going to get excited about the latest sound card? Ooh, I'm oh, excited yeah. now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> people look well, at you and wonder, what is he reading? Well, Ken, uh, we're almost out of time here. I know you have to go, and uh, we do too. But I always like to ask my guests at the end of the show, at least lately, what have you downloaded lately that's really cool? You know, I download something. It's funny you should ask. Just today, that makes my life better. 
And what would that be? Not porn. And <laughs> so you're working in virtual PCs, and I do this a lot, and you want to, for example, uh, install some software into a virtual PC, which I do often. Well, if you try to hook up to the computer's hard drive or the computer's uh, CD-ROM drive, it's slow. It's going through a bunch of layers. And they have the option in VPC to load an ISO drive that is a, an image of a CD and just load it and run it within the virtual PC. But creating those ISO images of CDs is a pain in the butt. Hmm. I found a product called Magic ISO. Just search for Magic ISO, M-A-G-I-C-I-S-O. It's magiciso.com. And they that's their goal, is to make it easy for you to create ISO images of CDs. Like last week, Brian and I were sitting in a hotel room, and he needed to install Exchange into a VPC, only had, didn't have a CD-ROM drive there at all. Hmm. So what he did was make an ISO image of the Exchange installation CD on a different machine, copied over here, mounted in virtual PC, and it just magically worked. So it's a, it's a godsend if you need to create ISO images of CDs. Now, you can use uh, Nero, right? Nero yes. has that feature. Nero does it just fine, and that was the second option. Mm-hmm. But Nero is huge, and finding the right options and setting everything up, I okay. mean, they do create ISO files, but okay. it's not their point in life. Got it. Sometimes you're better off finding a single trick Pony, as they say, to mix metaphors here. <laughs> That's why I like the ISO recorder, too. It's totally dedicated. Right-click on an ISO file, make a CD. Done. Doesn't do anything else. I take it you found this also, Richard? Yeah. Yeah, it does that, it does that yes. So it, it's a great tool if you need to deal with ISO files. So I can't recommend it enough. Awesome. The, the icons, it has a million icons. Good luck figuring what any of them do. <laughs> but So the, the user interface is a little inscrutable. <laughs> but uh, it, it's a cool tool. So that's what I'm going to recommend, my cool download of the day. Awesome. Well, any last-minute words of wisdom to impart in our listeners before we uh, say goodbye? Watch out for carpet on the floors in hurricane territory. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, listen, it's been fun having you on my show and listening to you and Richard do a great show all by yourselves. And for myself and Jeff Maciolik in the sound room, Ken Getz in Florida, and Richard Campbell out in Vancouver, British Columbia, this is Carl saying... Have a great week. Try to stay dry and love each other. Do good things. We'll see you.